Good morning. One thing we want to remind you of is that our men's group, uh, Second Adams Lodge, is meeting, kind of getting re-kicked back off next Saturday night. No, yeah, this coming Saturday. So the one that's, well, that's always confusing, you know, six days from now. Six days from now, Saturday 6th at 6 p.m. Is it the 6th or the 7th? The 7th. It's the 7th at 6 p.m. So if, if you're not confused, just give, you know, give us a little time. But we're excited to get the men's group, you know, uh, back rolling again. So look for it. All, of, all men are invited. It's going to be a dinner. It's going to be great. We're going to have a great time. 6 p.m. on the 7th. It's easy. See, you make it do it. Uh, so we're beginning a, ser- a series today that I'm calling Change Isn't Change Until It's Change. So... How do we change? Because change is difficult. And sometimes we don't even want to change, but we don't even need to change. So God brings about transformational change in our lives, permanent change. Sometimes we don't see it the way we want to see it, but it only happens when God changes your heart. And it happens not externally, not by applying the law. That's the temptation we always have is that we, you know, here we are in the new year. And I bet some of you have made some good resolutions. You're going to lose 15 pounds. You're going to work out every day you're going to you're going to be a thinner fitter version of yourself and often as we know those kinds of, of resolutions there it's not that they're bad to make they're just not effective most people don't keep them because we're trying to change behavior by applying what the bible tells us doesn't work we're trying to change behavior by the law We're trying to make external changes, and the way God wants to work in us, he wants to change us, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. He wants to work to change our heart. So we're in John chapter 16. Jesus is speaking to his disciples uh, the night before he dies, right before he's going to leave them. So in his last words, uh, he tells them (laughs) the kind of life he wants them to live, and they're presumably, you can imagine, overwhelmed. They're, they're, they're maybe coming to some idea that he's leaving. They don't really get it. They certainly don't get the resurrection yet. And, you know, this, and it's, it's just days away. So they're, they're in a place of confusion. So John, Jesus says in John chapter 16, but very truly I tell you, this is incredible. I, I think this is a, a really powerful verse when we wrap our minds around it. It's good for you that I'm going away. Can you imagine what they thought when he said that? Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. But when he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because people do not believe in me and about righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you more than you can bear, now bear, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, and he will not speak on his own, he will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive, that he will make known to you. All that the Father, that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. 
Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a while you'll see, you will see me. So Jesus says, this is, he's just giving them a heads up. These are some ways that I want you to live. I'm going away, and I'm going to send you a helper so you can live the way that I've described to you that I want you to live. So just, just a, a taste, in John 13 through 17, he has kind of outlined, outlined some things in John 13, 14, he says, he tells them, you know, I've washed your feet. You should watch, watch, watch each other's feet. Wash. Oh, look, what, what are you doing? I'm watching your feet. Uh, we should wash each other's feet. Uh, you know, which is just servanthood at its, its highest. He tells them to love one another in John 13 the way that he had loved them, which is like loving one another on steroids. It's the golden rule, like times 10 and in John 13 through 15 he tells them four times to love one another it's one of the most, most important things he says this is this is this is the thing you have to love one another love God love one another he tells them I go to prepare a place for you so he's telling them I want you to trust God with your tomorrows I want you to trust me that I've got a place for you that this is not it this is not over there's a destiny there's a purpose there's a plan so he's telling them to trust God with tomorrow. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So he tells them clearly, and he says this numerous times, if, if you want to follow me, if you want to love me, you're going to do the things that I've said. The main thing he said was, love one another as, as I have loved you. So he's, he's telling them they need to love each other, keep his commandments, because he's told them things to do. And then he tells them, if you abide in me, I'll abide in you, and you'll bear much fruit. He says, if you want to have lasting fruitfulness, then you have to abide in the vine. There's, there's no way to have lasting fruitfulness in your life if you're not abiding in the true vine of Jesus, that you have to abide in him, and you can produce fruit. And so, understandably, he tells them, he's, he's just laid all this stuff on them, and uh, understandably, they're overwhelmed. In John chapter 16, verse 5 and 6, he says, but now... I'm going to him who sent me. None of you ask, where are you going? Rather, you're filled with grief because I said these things. So, so they're filled with grief because he said he's going away, and they don't understand really what's going on. He's given them a lot of information, and they're probably thinking, we couldn't do this stuff when he was right here in the room. <laughs> I mean, he, he's going away? And he expects us to be able to do it without him present. And I think a lot of us feel that way. When we thought, think about living the Christian life, we have a capacity problem. We feel overwhelmed. We believe it. We believe that Jesus died on the cross to save us. We believe in our salvation. That is true. But we feel overwhelmed by it. We feel like we don't know how to do it. I mean, you know, if, if I was to say to you right now, we're going to, everybody, I want you to pray out loud. And some of you have been have known Jesus for 20 years would crawl under your chair because though you know it there's still that little I'm, I'm not sure I'm good I'm not great at this I might mess this up I you know here am I Lord send somebody else uh, or we've tried it we've we've tried to do stuff and we've messed up anybody here ever messed up when you try to do something so Jesus says to them I'm gonna give you an advocate the word advocate means helper, comforter, counselor, John 16. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. 
Advocate comes from the Greek word parakletos, which means helper, comforter, advocate, counselor. So we're going to look at four things that this reveals. It reveals the power, the goal, the method, and the results. What, what is the result of this comforter coming? So he doesn't just give us a list of rules to follow. I mean, sometimes people see the Old Testament as a list of rules. The New Testament is just a list of better rules. You know, new and improved rules. So how does Jesus help us? Well, he gives us the power of a counselor. It's great, you know, when you came to know Jesus, I don't know if you recognize this, but you immediately went into counseling. And you went into counseling with the best counselor. See, he says, it's better for you that I leave and go to be with the Father and send the Holy Spirit to live in you. And I don't know, I think if, if I was one of them, it would, I've been very tempted to gather around the table you know, as we're having the Last Supper, it'd be very tempted to say, no, 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 it's not better for you to go away. Say, stay. I mean, how, how could something, think about this, how could something be better than having the real Jesus with us, right? And I think we think that. We think, if only I had been with them, they were, you know, sometimes didn't seem to be very smart, I would have done better than they did. Don't you ever think that? You, you look at Simon Peter, you think, man, he's always popping off his mouth, saying stuff. But if, if I had been there, I would have been able to perceive about the resurrection and what, you know, I'd, I'd just been smarter than everybody else in the room. Jesus says, you know, and they'd, they'd, they had seen it. They'd heard his teaching. They'd, they'd heard the best teaching that of anyone's ever taught. They'd heard the best teaching possible. They had seen miracle after miracle. They'd seen the lame walking, the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, the dead living again. And you think, man, if, if, I, had see, if I could see that, if I could see that, if, if I had been able to experience that, I know that that would empower me to be a different kind of person. If I had been with Jesus in the room, and they had seen it, and they had been there. Jesus says, in the midst of that, it's better for me, it's better for you, for me to go away. And that sounds crazy to us. There's something better than Jesus being right now with us in this room. There's something better than the real presence of Jesus. That's what he's saying, right? There's something better than the physical presence of Jesus in this room right now. And although we'd love to have that, right? But he's promised us something better than that. So what we have now, what he's telling us, is what we have now through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is better than what they had in person before the coming of the Spirit. Now wrap your mind around that a little bit. So this is what Jesus had promised. John 14, verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. So he's given the promise that the Spirit of God is not going to just rest upon them because the Spirit of God has been on them because they've done miracles too. They've cast out demons too. They've seen the lame walk and the deaf hear and the blind see. The Lord used them. He sent them out. 
to do miracles, and they did it. They, they've seen that, but he's saying, this is more than that. Acts 1.8, but you'll receive power. This is before the resurrection. Before he's ascended to the Father, he said, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit com comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and, and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we have the evidence of it because we see how the coming of the Holy Spirit changed them. So we can see that it did make a real difference in their lives. When Jesus was arrested, they all fled. We know this in Mark 14, 48. Am I leading rebellion, Jesus said to those who had come to arrest him, said, you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me. Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. On that night that he was betrayed by Judas, he was also abandoned by everyone else. So he was betrayed by, Jesus, by, by Judas and then abandoned by everyone else. And then even after his resurrection, they were still afraid. So they're afraid what's happened to Jesus is going to happen to them. So even after they know about the resurrection, they've seen the resurrected Christ. But on John, in John chapter 20, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them, which I'm sure, you know, freaked them all out, and said, peace be with you. So then what happened? Well, then, then the day of Pentecost comes, and they get the Holy Spirit, not on them, but in them. And now something's dynamically different. So Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, and he, said, and he preaches with boldness, a boldness that none of them had, a courage that none of them had. Now they're fearless. He stands up and says, Therefore let all Israel be assured, Acts 2.36, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. He's like, he's preaching at them. Hey, you crucified him. They've been hiding out in a room for fear of these people. And now he's poking his finger in the nose of these people and said, You crucified the Messiah. You did it. What changed him? What's the difference? Have you watched any of The Chosen? And I love, I love the portion where Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene, is that right? Mary Magdalene, yeah. Uh, Nicodemus is having a conversation with her because he's found out that she's been changed and he had talked with her and, and can't figure out, you know, what's happened. So he's like, did I do this? And she's like, no, you didn't do this. And, and so, so she says... He says to her, what happened? He says, she says, all I know, I was one way, and now I'm another completely different way. And the only difference is him. I was one way, now I'm another way, and, now, and the only difference is him. And, and that's, that's really, so you can say, what's the difference? What, what happened? Because... Peter and the, all the disciples were one way, and then after the day of Pentecost, they're another way. What happened? The only explanation is the power of the Holy Spirit inside of them. What changes us? The same thing that changed them. The power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. We need the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us.
than the gold of the counselor. But I, very truly, I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The word that he uses is paraclete in the Greek. Para means to come alongside, to relate, to assist. Kaleo means truth or to tell someone the truth. So the truth is what it means, you know, to bring the truth alongside. And so it's, it's four different words that are often used. It's advocate, counselor, teacher, comforter. But he's not just a teacher. He doesn't just come with information. The Holy Spirit doesn't just come with information because information doesn't change us. You can have all the information in the world and not be changed. I mean, look at the Pharisees. They knew the Bible better than the disciples. They knew it all better than the, the disciples, but yet they weren't changed. They weren't changed because <laughs> the Spirit of God was not working in their heart. He's also not a sympathizer. You know, uh, that's why I'm not a great counselor. I do counseling, but counseling is not my gifting. Uh, my counseling style is more like this. That's stupid. Stop doing it. Stop that. I know you've been doing Stop doing that. If you'll stop doing that, you'll quit having this result. And then when they don't stop, it's like, I don't understand why you didn't stop. I told you real clearly. You know, stop this. You'll get this result. You keep doing this stupid thing, you're still going to get a stupid result. So that's why I don't make a lot of money counseling. Uh, but see, the, also, you don't want a counselor that, that excuses everything. Well, now, you know, they just sympathize with you. You want a counselor that will tell you the truth and also sympathize with you. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He is grace and truth. See, the, the, the job of a counselor is not information, but to work that truth into you so that you understand it. It's one thing to know truth, but it's one thing to really know truth, for it to be inside of you. If you understand it. John 14, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. The apostles had heard the truth, but the truth was still not real to them yet. They had heard the truth, but it wasn't in them. Even so, it, Acts chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus has been resurrected. <laughs> so, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, in a, but in a few days you'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? I'm, and I'm sure Jesus was tempted to go like, oh, no, I don't know. Father, I don't think it's going to work. <laughs> they're, they're, they're not getting it. They're not getting it, you know? Lord, now, now are you going to restore the kingdom? Now is it going to look, look like we think it ought to look? This is after the resurrection. He had told them, but they didn't get it. They needed help. That's why he sent the Holy Spirit. They were not able to break through their culturally preconceived notions of how the kingdom of the Messiah was going to come. In reality, it had already come. Because the king had been enthroned on his throne on earth, which was the cross. <laughs> and he had taken the offering in heaven. 
So he had, he had, the kingdom was there. The kingdom is here. But they couldn't see it because they were seen through the eyes of their predetermined, culturally derived beliefs. It caused them to reject and dismiss God's truth that was literally in the room with them. It causes us, it happens to us too. Our preconceived, culturally derived beliefs cause us to reject and dismiss God's truth. It ends up with conversations like this. So you're a Christian? Yes. I've been a Christian for a long time. Then why are you fill in the blank? So you can fill in the blank. Why are you lying or stealing? Or one that we're really good in in the church, gossiping. We call it prayer request. Uh, fornicating. Getting, I'll, getting drunk. I'll just throw this in for last night. Or anything. So, so I'm a, yes, I'm a Christian. But wh so why do you do these things that even non-Christians would say? Christians aren't supposed to do that. The world says, you, you're not a very good Christian if you're doing that stuff, right? But, so why would we say, and often, here's the response, everybody does it. Really? Yes, they do. Everybody does do it, but we're not they. We are his. So that changes it. They had information, but they didn't have transformation yet. They didn't have it yet. John 16, 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. He's going to glorify Jesus. The Holy Spirit is going to glorify Jesus. Jonathan Edwards, you may not know who Jonathan Edwards was. Jonathan Edwards is often considered the greatest early American or American preacher, theologian. Uh, in 1730, he looked at his congregation in Northampton, New Hampshire, and he asked this question. What's the difference between a nominal Christian and a real Christian? A weak, immature, carnal Christian and a mature, vital Christian. He determined that it is all spiritual reality. So what does that mean? He said the vast majority of people in Northampton, New Hampshire, believed in heaven. They even expected to go to heaven. Incidentally, in a very recent Pew research today, most people in America, 73%, believe in heaven and expect to go to heaven. Pretty high percentage, right? This was something I found fascinating. 3% of atheists believe in heaven. Well, that's like hedging your bets, right? <laughs> he said, the problem is not heaven. The problem is that heaven is not real to them. He says, if heaven were real to you, you'd be incredibly, incredibly generous. You wouldn't be selfish with your money. If heaven was real to you, you wouldn't live fearless, joy-filled lives. You wouldn't fear death. You wouldn't be afraid of death if heaven was real to you. You wouldn't be anxious. 
to go to heaven either because you would be aware of your calling to help people join you in heaven. You'd be aware that there were people who weren't going to heaven and it was your job to help them to get to heaven. They have a belief in heaven, he's saying, but it's not real to them. See, this is the goal. This is what the Holy Spirit does. The goal of the Holy Spirit, the counselor, the advocate, is to come alongside and to make God's truth real to us. He said everybody in town believes there's a creator God who created all things and that we owe everything to. He said, but yet I see people only praying when they need something from God. If we're only praying when we need something from God, it means we don't really have a sense of the glory of God. We don't really see who God is. He's not real to us. He said there is a difference between a mature and a weak Christian. You believe in the love of God, but you always feel snubbed? Why do you always feel slighted if someone doesn't notice you or give you the attention you believe you deserve? Why are you vulnerable to criticism? Because the love of God's not real to you. All of your problems come because of things that you know but are not real to you. You know them, but it's not real. Why is it important? To know the things that are true or real because the big problem is is that the unreal things become real to us and the real things become unreal to us think about this so 20 years ago your father or mother or coach or a preacher or a teacher someone said to you that you're worthless and you can't forget it even though there is a ton of evidence that it's not true and the Bible's filled with all kinds of true statements about how precious you are to God, that you're chosen, that he died for you on the cross, how special you are to God, how much he loves you, but it's not real to you in spite of all the evidence to the contrary. See, the goal of the Holy Spirit is to take this stuff that we, we know in our heads as knowledge and make it real so that it's transformational. Because if you really believe God loves you, it doesn't matter if anybody else does. If you really believe that. Number three, the method of the counselor. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. And all that belongs to the Father is mine. So everything in eternity in heaven belongs to Jesus. And Jesus is going to take that and give it to us. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. When the Spirit comes... He'll show us the real Jesus. When the Spirit comes, He shows us the real Jesus. Romans 8, verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If you want to see real transformation in your life, you don't look to the law. You look <laughs> to the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection. And the intersection you look to Jesus not the law 
See, when the Spirit comes, he shows us who the real Jesus is. And when we see who the real Jesus is, we see the truth. And when we see the truth, it's transformational. I think sometimes in the church, we suffer from the sin of getting used to it. I was thinking this morning that what the Holy Spirit does often, somebody's decided I need to stop, uh, what the Holy Spirit does is that he's showing us the beauty of Christ. So we're seeing the glory and the beauty of Christ. Can you imagine if being a park ranger at the Grand Canyon? Okay, so you're a park ranger at the Grand Canyon. So every day you see just the grandeur, the, this huge scar, this giant hole that because it's so large, it's just awe-inspiring. And, and you're a park ranger, and they even have a walk where you can walk out into the void, so you can walk out into nothingness, you know, for stupid people. I meant brave people, for courageous, brave people, okay. Uh, if I do that, I'm walking like this, on the edges, you know. And... Uh, you know what would happen to you in a while? You wouldn't even see it. It'd just be a place. And I, I've known people that moved to Hawaii because they wanted to live in the grandeur of Hawaii, and after a while, it's just a place you live. And they moved to the mountains because they wanted to live in Colorado, and who doesn't want to live in Colorado in the mountains? And they just, they were in Colorado in the mountains, and it was just a place to live. And we do the same thing with Jesus. We, we're standing on the edge of the glory of the grandeur of God that is revealed to us in Christ, and it should elicit from us an almost continual wow. That's what it does, that's what it does in heaven. If you look at what's happening in heaven, heaven is a continuing over and over. They're saying, holy, which the word holy really, it doesn't just, it doesn't, we think of the word holy is pure and without sin. But the word holy in its root is that God is whole and he's unique. See, God wants you to be holy because he wants you to be who he created you to be. He wants you to be holy and not, and not tainted by the world. He wants you to be what he created you to be. He wants you to be holy. And so the, all of heaven, they see the glories of the Godhead. They go, and they fall down. They can't contain it. They can't take it. They're ne we're never going to get used to it. We're not going to go like that. Because, you know, can't you imagine if your job was you're the angel that's going holy, holy, holy? About 15 minutes, you're going to be like, holy, holy, holy. <laughs> All right. What's next? What's next? That's the way we're, that's the way. But they never... And I think sometimes we suffer from the sin of getting used to it. We get used to the glory and the grandeur of Christ and who he is and what he's accomplished. And the role of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts is to make it real. To make it new. To make it fresh within us. For us to see the, to see the beauty of the, the Grand Canyon and 
the nebula, what, whatever you see is overwhelming. He is a billion times more than that, that we would see it. You may have recognized this song, Helen Limmel in 1918 wrote, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Isn't that a great song? Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The method of the counselor is to show us the beauty of Jesus to where we just can't hardly help but worship. Because if you see it, if you see it, you can't be the same. It's transforming when we see his beauty. The result is this. 2 Corinthians 3.17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with everlasting glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Isn't that amazing? We are transformed when we look at the Lord we see who he is and that's the spirit's job the spirit's work in our life is for all of the things of God to become real we see it for what it really and the un see we're burdened by the unreal the temporary the passing and when we should be caught up in the real so caught up in the real that the unreal does not weight us down. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand. So this is my prayer for you for the new year. Listen to this. Here's what I want you to think about this. That the power of the Holy Spirit would fill us and make God's truth real to us by showing us the beauty of Jesus so that we would be transformed. Transformation doesn't come by doing better and trying harder because it hadn't worked for you in the past. It's not going to work this year. It comes from looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, looking to Jesus in the power of the Spirit. That's what the Spirit of God wants to do in our, in our hearts. Amen? Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, Thank you for another chance, another day, another year to display your glory in our lives. Lord, I pray that this will be a year as we gather on this first day of the year. I pray that this will be a year, that this is the first fruits of this year in our lives. That I pray, Lord, that we will be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will work in our lives to make your word real to us. It will work in our lives to make Jesus real to us. It will work in us to transform us from the inside out. 
because we need you. We need you, Lord. We need you this year as much and more than we've ever needed you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Man, I love you. I love you.